What we saw is that a lot of near retirees who were not in QDIAs pulled a bunch of money out of the stock market right at exactly the wrong time. Hi, I'm Brian Anderson, the managing editor at 401k Specialist, and this is the 401k Podcast. My colleague John Sullivan, who usually hosts this program, is out sailing through the Caribbean as we speak on a much-needed vacation. So I get the privilege of sitting in this week to talk about the potential of a post-pandemic economic punch for the retirement industry, the momentum surrounding the Secure Act 2.0 legislation making its way through Congress, and whatever else might be on the mind of renowned retirement income planning expert Michael Finca of the American College of Financial Services. Michael will join us right after this brief message. Left on their own, 401k participants tend not to put enough equities into their portfolios. The pandemic exacerbated this, as John Hancock saw many interesting trends, including self-directed investors shifting to more conservative stances in response to market turbulence. See what else John Hancock learned about 401k participant behavior in its State of the Participant 2021 white paper. Download it today at retirement.johnhancock.com. John Hancock Investment Management Distributors, LLC, member FINRA, SIPC. Okay, our guest today is Michael Finca, PhD, Professor of Wealth Management at the American College of Financial Services. Michael is the director of the Al Granham Center for Financial Security and the Frank M. Engel Distinguished Chair in Economic Security at the American College, where he's been since 2016. Prior to that, he spent 10 years as a professor and PhD coordinator in the Department of Personal Financial Planning at Texas Tech University. I'm sure many of you are familiar with Michael's research and work as a high-profile expert on the value of financial advice and retirement income issues in particular. He's had more than 50 peer-reviewed articles and is regularly quoted in major pubs like the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times, and he's a regular staple in the trades, including plenty of mentions right here on our own site at 401k Specialist. So Michael, first off, welcome to the 401k Podcast, and thanks for joining us. Good to be here. Thank you. Uh, I want to start off with a question about how you see the rest of this year playing out as we come out of the pandemic. Do you think there's going to be a lot of activity in the retirement plan space? And as the economy hopefully really opens up again, are there any opportunities on the horizon out there that plan advisors might be in a good position to act on? Well, yeah, I think I feel like we're really beginning to enter a new stage of retirement 2.0 in terms of QDIA solutions in the retirement space. So, um, I, I've done a lot of research over the last year on how people responded during the pandemic, participants during the pandemic. And what I've seen is that there really has been a revolution in the use of automated target date funds. And that's completely changed behavior of our participants. So just as an example, in March 2020, when um, the market dropped significantly in a short period of time, both stocks and bonds What we saw is that a lot of near retirees who were not in QDIAs pulled a bunch of money out of the stock market right at exactly the wrong time. But we, at the same time, saw that those who were in a QDIA, those who were in some kind of a target date fund, they didn't freak out. And I think that that's because they weren't even thinking about their retirement savings. If they're not at the wheel, they don't feel responsible. They've delegated that responsibility. So we, we now have a lot of data to suggest that the, the, the value of QDIAs is not just in standardization and low costs and simplification, but it's also enhancing the behavior of participants. It's improving their outcomes and investments. 
to me, that is the most exciting thing about the next generation of retirement solutions is that we have now are, we're now moving to higher quality QDIAs, more customized types of QDIAs where you can actually ask a participant about their what their goals are, what their risk preferences are, and you can build a customized QDIA for that participant. And then we have the transition into the retirement space. And I, I'm looking forward to seeing a whole lot of product innovation in in-plan solutions to solving that problem of creating a lifestyle for a worker in retirement. Um, I, I've seen a lot of innovation over the last few years. I think we're going to see it in the marketplace. The SECURE Act and the SECURE Act 2.0 uh, both provide provisions that make some of these solutions more, more possible. Uh, so it, it will be interesting to see that change as a result of the pandemic. It's A lot of things have been speeding up over the last few years. Speaking of SECURE 2.0, I'd like to focus on some of the proposed retirement legislation so far this year. Uh, you said recently you think the Securing a Strong Retirement Act of 2021, better known as SECURE 2.0, is going to sail through Congress with relative ease. First off, yes, it's it's got bipartisan support and all, um, but in Washington, D.C. these days, uh, what makes you encouraged that it could actually uh, make it to President Biden's desk later this year? You know, I'm encouraged because I think that those in Congress need to show that they're actually doing something. And this is an example of a bill that nobody seems to oppose. Um, we, we've had it's probably going to go through some minor rewrites. It's been through Ways and Means now. My, my sense is that there's nobody who thinks this is a bad idea. And there's really elements of the bill to satisfy members on both sides of the aisle. So everybody can agree that we're trying to improve the retirement system. We all know that this, this privatized portable retirement system, the defined contribution system, never designed to actually be the primary source of retirement savings for American workers. And that means that we have to make these tweaks along the way as we learn more about behavior, as we find ways to create incentives to improve outcomes for workers. I think what you're going to see is is there's no there's there's going to be no strong opposition. And in terms of legislation, there's everybody wants to show that they've done something that's going to make people happy. And there are provisions in this bill, such as increasing the um, age at which retirees have to begin taking RMDs, which are so universally appealing. There's an incentive for everybody to get this thing passed to say that they've actually done something. So there's some differences of opinion about whether this is actually going to sail through or not. I don't see significant opposition. Um, so I, I think that there are a lot of people who want to see this move forward. I'm optimistic. I, I, there are some changes that I would like to see in the bill. Um, you know, for example, the, the QLAC provision, um, the QLAC provision in that that actually was in the original bill allowed QLACs up to $200,000. That may seem like a minor thing, but when we're thinking about solutions 2.0 uh, in especially the decumulation space, if we want to create some kind of a retirement solution that integrates longevity protection for higher income workers, it's essential that we get that QLAC limit pushed up to $200,000. Why? Because we want to create a stream of base income for these retirees that's going to match a percentage of their pre-retirement income. So I'm working hard to make sure that that gets reintroduced into the bill. 
Um, it also allows retirees to take a higher percentage of their IRA savings and put it into a QLAC. This is especially important for in-plan decumulation solutions, where the majority of the investments of the participant might be held within some kind of an in-plan investment account, but then that longevity is protection is, is rolled out of the account uh, into an IRA. And otherwise, you would have had to face these limits where you could only put a quarter of the amount that you rolled out into a QLAC in in. And now what we have is the ability, well, hopefully soon, to be able to put a higher percentage of that amount into a QLAC to provide the longevity protection within the IRA portion of your retirement savings. So that I see is a big, you know, all of these are moving towards getting higher quality in-plan solutions that actually can transition workers into um, that that post retirement space where they actually have to pull money out of their assets. To me, that is so important because in my research, what I see is that a lot of participants just don't spend their money. They don't feel comfortable seeing their nest egg get smaller. And in an environment where rates of return on financial assets in the future are probably going to be relatively low, rate of returns on bonds are you know maybe one to two percent. That nest egg is going to have to get smaller for retirees to be able to maintain the lifestyle that they had before retirement. So I, I'm hopeful that we can develop better in-plan solutions for decumulation and, and also better information for participants to help them understand how their savings can translate into a lifestyle in retirement. There are some other provisions of the SECURE Act 2.0 that I'm, I'm very excited about. One, uh, it's going to encourage more employers or mandate some employers, but encourage more employers to automatically place their employees into a defined contribution plan. But the most important thing about the legislation is that it's encouraging the use of auto escalation. And as we know right now, 3% savings is not enough. But what you can do is you can gradually increase that savings amount by 1% every year. And all of a sudden, after a few years, employees are actually saving enough to be able to main, maintain their pre-retirement lifestyle. So auto escalation is all about gradually getting employees to save an amount of money that even in today's low interest rate environment is going to allow them to be able to maintain a lifestyle after they retire. So that's, you know, all when I'm looking through the legislation, I'm seeing all of the research that's been done over the last 10 years on participant behavior and trying to fix some of these problems that some of which were created in the Pension Protection Act of 2006 to get participants in a position where they're going to be more likely to achieve a successful retirement in a defined contribution plan. Yeah, you covered a lot of what I was uh, what I was going to ask about uh, right there, but uh, it seems like there's been a fair amount of momentum for uh, momentum building for adding more guaranteed income products into 401k plans. Thanks, of course, to the original Secure Act Safe Harbor provision. Do you think, could the Secure Act do for annuities what the Pension Protection Act did for target date funds? No, um, but it gets us closer. So uh, just as a reminder, um, what, what did the Pension Protection Act do for target date funds? So everybody who was an expert acknowledged that target date funds were the most efficient form factor of saving for retirement. Uh, they're low cost. They provide an automatic glide path that matches the risk preference of, of the majority of participants. It's standardized. 
but only 5% of participants actually put money into target date funds before the Pension Protection Act. Right now, it's 52%. So it is it is completely transformed the landscape. Now, what I see happening with annuities is that more of these QDIA target date type funds are going to consider the benefit of at least partial annuitization in the transit in the in-plan transition into the retirement space of a life cycle. Um, so I, 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 I think it's going to happen. I don't think it's going to happen quite as rapidly as the, tra- I mean, safe Harbor for annuities is a little bit more squishy. A lot of plan sponsors still feel that there might be some potential risk to adding annuities to a plan. We're trying to get to the point where, uh, plan sponsors don't feel like they're going to be at risk from incorporating an annuity. And I think partially what's going to happen is we're going to have to have in-plan solutions that are integrated as part of a QDIA. Um, and there's going to have, plan sponsors are going to have to be to feel like per, they're perfectly comfortable with that annuity solution. Um, they're going to have to be customized for the participants. I see that's that's part of the next stage. So participants need to be defaulted into some partial annuitization, but they need to be given the opportunity to opt out. And that creates a little bit of challenge in creating these products because if they can opt out, those products provide a little bit less value. So in order to maintain liquidity, um, you know, the annuities have value because you become part of a long life income club. You p- everybody pitches in their money and that money provides income to whoever is still alive. And if you have the ability to take the money out, then that that ruins the whole long life income club. Let's say if you get diagnosed with cancer, you shouldn't be able to pull your money out because everybody else is relying on your money to be able to fund their lifestyle later on. So there's a lot of things that we need to figure out to be able to integrate annuitization efficiently into a DC system. And I feel like we're going to get there. We have to because it is so much more efficient to pool longevity risk than it is to try to face that risk on your own. Um, so it is the it is the efficient solution, but we're still coming up with innovative ways to solve that problem. And I don't think it's going to get solved immediately. As we're winding down our time here a little bit, are there any uh, are there any other issues out there we haven't discussed yet that you have your eyes on? Or said another way, uh, what are you working on these days? <laughs> Um, well, I mean, first of all, the, the RMDs, right? So required minimum distributions in 2022, if this passes, it's going to go up to age 73, but it won't go up to 74 until 2029 ish. So, um, it's, it's not going to be a huge change. Now I, I think a lot about RMDs because, I, first of all, um, people hate them, and it's going to make this bill more popular to to at least advertise it as if we're increasing RMDs to 75. Of course, that would be too expensive, so we have to do it gradually over time so that we don't break the budget. Um, but but I also think about the advantage of RMDs. I'm actually one of those the few people who will go publicly and say, I like the idea of RMDs because it gives retirees an idea of how much they can safely spend from their retirement savings. And in fact, what I see is that spending will jump up at the age at which retirees are eligible to receive their RMD. So in some ways, it spurs spending by retirees. It is an efficient way to take your money out because it's based on your expected longevity and your current account balance. Um, and, and as you get older, it can be more difficult for people to 
be able to estimate what is a safe amount of money that they can take out of their retirement savings. It's almost like an endorsement that the uh, uh, the financial company tells them how much money that they can spend that year. Um, one of the things I'm thinking about is if this does happen, how do we provide better ways to give employees guidance about how much they can safely take out of their retirement savings? And the other thing that I worry about is that this is just a really expensive time to retire. Financial assets, stocks and bonds, um, you have to have three times as much money as the historical average to provide the same income from interest and dividends. And that means that retirees today are not able to generate as much income from their investment portfolio. They're going to have to pull money out, but there's very little guidance on how to do that safely. And we have, I mean, the, the, we're, we're trying to prepare workers for funding a lifestyle in retirement, but we're not giving them enough guidance about how to pull the money out. And in fact, by pushing those RMDs out, what we're doing is we're, we're taking away the one source of guidance that they actually have about how much they can safely spend. So I, I think part of the goal is to give employees greater guidance about how to withdraw money and not just keep more money in their investment accounts um, to get to allow them to actually enjoy the money that they sacrifice to save over the course of their lifetime. Great. Uh, that kind of brings me to one final question that kind of ties in a little bit to what you're talking about with uh, RMDs there. So my last question, what do you think of the potential new Social Security statement format? I'm sure we could do a whole other episode on issues related to Social Security, but I saw recently that you got a sneak peek at a soft launch for a redesigned and simpler Social Security statement. Yeah, What'd you think? So I, I love this idea. So for a long time, the Social Security Administration has been criticized because um, they have actually been providing guidance that appears to encourage people to not delay claiming of Social Security, to claim at age, age 62. This is particularly unhelpful for women uh, because women end up living longer and they actually receive a greater benefit from delayed claiming on Social Security. And so what we see now is better illustrations of the value of waiting until 63 or 64 or 65, 66, 67. And it, it shows how much your income will bump up on average. That kind of guidance is incredibly important because remember, you can retire before you take Social Security. You can retire at 64 and not take Social Security till age 70. You just have to use your 401k, your IRA savings to fund that spending between 64 and 70. This gives people a better indication of how much they can increase their Social Security income by waiting until a later age to, de to delay claiming, which I think is for most healthy Americans, a great idea, especially for most defined contribution participants who tend to be higher earning, longer lived Americans, they get a bigger benefit from delayed claiming. So giving them that guidance is only good. Well, that makes a lot of sense. Um, all right. Well, it's been uh, it's been very educational. Um, well, th that's all the time we have for today's podcast. But uh, once again, I want to thank our guest, Michael Finca, for joining us today and sharing his insights. Thank you. Good to be here. Left on their own, 401k participants tend not to put enough equities into their portfolios. The pandemic exacerbated this, as John Hancock saw many interesting trends, including self-directed investors shifting to more conservative stances in response to market turbulence. 
See what else John Hancock learned about 401k participant behavior in its State of the Participant 2021 white paper. Download it today at retirement.johnhancock.com. John Hancock Investment Management Distributors, LLC, member FINRA, SIPC.